WNYC Studios is supported by Earth Justice. As a national legal nonprofit, Earth Justice has more than 200 full time lawyers who fight for a healthy environment. They're challenging utilities to lower your power bill and fight climate change by helping communities achieve clean, affordable energy for all. From stopping new gas plants to helping advance the growth of rooftop solar, Earth Justice is accelerating the clean energy transition so we can all breathe easy. Visit earthjustice.org slash power to learn more. That's earthjustice.org slash power. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Okay, so I get asked this question a lot. And um, I get out in 2027. I got sentenced to 14 years for manslaughter. But before you judge me, just know that there's a story behind it. So currently I've been incarcerated for nine years. And one thing I can tell you for sure, this is not where you want to be. The one thing that was the hardest adjustment was food preferences. Because, see, I had been locked up 21 years, so I had only been eating prison food for that long. And so when I came home and I would, people would take me to these different restaurants and they would ask me, what do I want? And it's like, I really don't know what I want because I don't know how anything tastes anymore. Jail sucks. Don't go to jail. Don't be doing stuff you're not supposed to. So now I'm trying to keep it legit. This is the United States of Anxiety. I'm Kai Wright, and welcome to the show. Shaka Senghor is a best-selling author and speaker who's drawn a lot of attention for telling his life story. He's been with Oprah, he's been with Barack Obama, he's been on The Breakfast Club and primetime TV shows, and often the focus is on his story of redemption. Somebody who's spent nearly 20 years in prison for a deadly violent crime, and as somebody who's turned his life around, as the saying goes. We've wanted to talk to him on this show for a while, but I think that framing, that redemption story, it's a much too reductive way to understand the work Shaka Senghor is doing. His work is really about mental and emotional health for all of us, how we find what we need to be well, how we find it in our families, in our communities, how we find it in a society that's just not set up for that, and particularly for Shaka, how we find it as Black men and boys. So... Shaka, first off, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, truly honored. Looking forward to the conversation. It's been a long time coming, so yeah, I'm excited to be here. Shaka started writing while he was incarcerated. He got locked up at 19 years old, so really, he came of age while he was inside. And I asked him how, as a young man in there, he discovered his passion for writing and for storytelling. Prison, you know, is is definitely one of the most dehumanizing experiences you can imagine, and especially when you go in as a kid. And in the midst of that, you know, terrible environment, I met some of the most incredible mentors in the world. These men were sentenced to basically die in prison. And despite 
that, you know, the finality of their sentence, they were a beacon of hope and light for many of us. And, you know, initially they tried to mentor me in an old school way, kind of like straighten up young man. One day you're going to get out of prison. But, you know, I was 19. I couldn't imagine, you know, 20 years down the line. I mean, at 19, you could barely think two weeks down the line. Indeed. Um, but they found a way in, you know, and how they found their way in was through literature. And people used to ask me the question of like, what was the most important book you've ever read in your life? And I would always go to the autobiography of Malcolm X um, because it's one of the most transformative books that I've ever, you know, read. But it's not the most important. The most important is a book called Dope Fiend by Donald Goins. Mm. And Donald Goins was this writer who grew up in the streets of Detroit, grew up in the heroin trade, and eventually ended up in prison. And he wrote this series of books, maybe, you know, 13, 14 books, but they were about the underbelly of society. They were about, you know, drug traffickers, you know, prostitutes and police brutality and all these different things that were going on during that era. And the reason I say these men are so brilliant, because they knew that those books were limited. And so once I ran out of those books, I'm like, okay, what else do I read? <laughs> and they was like, here's this Malcolm X, check this out. And, and back then, I didn't know anything about Malcolm X. And so as a kid in prison, I just began to devour these books. And years later, uh, about maybe like eight or nine years into my sentence, I began this journey as a writer. And, and even that didn't come like across like, oh, I'm going to sit down and write a book. I actually started journaling because I really wanted to unpack what landed me in prison. And I started with an essential question I came across. Um, in Socrates' Apology, he said, the unexamined life isn't worth living. And when I read that, it just blew my mind because I was like, okay, how do you examine a life? Hmm. And then I challenged myself to write a book in 30 days. And so I wrote my first book, um, you know, in solitary confinement, no typewriter, no laptop, none of that stuff. It was the best feeling I've, I had ever experienced up to that point. Like just the the pride of completing something. Just making and, it to and, the end. Yeah, just making it to the end. And then I was like, okay, well, a book isn't a book until somebody read it. And I remember sharing it with a guy in a cell block. And when I when I sent it to him, we had to use a fish line, which is some string and, you know, a toothpaste tube that we put together to slide up under the door. And I remember when he started pulling it in, I was like, man, this is my only copy, you know? And, you <laughs> know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it's good. Yeah, I'm hoping to give it back because we're in solitary at the time. Yeah. There's nothing I can do if he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and fortunately, he gives me the book back. But it was a couple of days later. He hadn't spoken up until then. And he was like, man, it's one of the best books I've ever read. And from there, I was like, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to write in a way that's accessible to people who come from where I come from, but also can elevate conversations that I think are important from a social standpoint. So I started off writing fiction. And right my wrongs didn't come along until years later when I was out of prison. For listeners who aren't familiar with your story, let's just start there a little bit from the first book. Um, Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison, uh, which was released in 2013. Um, and in that book, you share that at age 14, you ran away from home and eventually uh, an older guy in your neighborhood, he got you into dealing crack um, into that game. So can we just start with, like, wh what made you run away? Yeah, when I, when I reflect back to, you know, leaving my household at, you know, around age, like, late 13, already 14, you know, 
what I thought would happen didn't happen. You know, I was a smart kid. I had all the potential in the world. I had a dream of being a doctor. And unfortunately, the circumstances of my household uh, were such that I didn't want to be there any longer. And what it looked like was that my mother um, was oftentimes physically abusive as well as emotionally and psychologically abusive. Um, you know, in, in the city I grew up in during the height of the crack cocaine era, kids were lured into this culture. I was homeless basically for two weeks, you know, sleeping in garages and basements of friends. And this older guy in the neighborhood, you know, he came along. He was like, hey, I see what your circumstances are. You know, come take a ride with me. And I remember him taking me to get, you know, some Burger King. And, you know, uh, and then he was like, I got somewhere where you can stay. But here's what you have to do. Um, you know, you just got to have to take care of these customers when they come through. And he really laid it out for me, gave me the drugs. And, you know, within that first week, you know, just the amount of money I made was you know, more than what I'm sure most parents were making at the time. And the first thing I did is I went to a grocery store down the street and I bought every type of cereal you can imagine uh, based on all the, you know, commercials I had seen as a kid. And that's what happens to, to tons of kids. It's one of the reasons that I decided to write the book because I really wanted people to understand that the young men and women who end up in prison, like it isn't a result of one decision it's a series of moments that transpire throughout their life that puts them in these very vulnerable and you know situations within these very adult environments yeah you ultimately were incarcerated arrested incarcerated for um for shoot for shooting somebody but um one of the things about it that struck me is you talk about how um you you experienced a, a sort of PTSD from a shooting that you had been involved in from when you had been shot earlier. Uh, can you just sort of revisit that for a, for a minute for us? Thank you for asking that question. You know, it's, it's one of those things where I think this is so relevant to conversations we're having when we're talking about, you know, gun laws and we're seeing these mass shootings in schools across the nation and I'm encouraged that people are actually talking about how important it is to keep kids safe. But I'm also disturbed because, you know, as a kid who grew up in a highly volatile environment where kids get shot every day, you know, nobody's thinking about our safety. Yeah. You know, I grew up in an environment with high levels of gun trauma. Uh, in my family alone, eight of us have been shot. Um, wow. When I was 17 years old, I got shot multiple times standing on the corner of my block. And at that point, I was the third of my mother's son to get shot. And so that proximity to high levels of gun violence is something that I didn't have language for. I didn't know what PTSD was. Right. What I did know is that when I went to the hospital, the doctor extracted two of the bullets. They left one bullet in. They patched me up and they sent me back to my neighborhood. And there was no therapist. There was no offer of a psychiatrist or psychologist. There was no language to say that, hey, you're going to experience all of these different emotions as a result of what happened to you. And so when I went back to my neighborhood, I carried with me what I consider this volatile cocktail. Yep. And this volatile cocktail was anger. It was paranoia. I was frustrated. I didn't feel valued. And so I, I had to navigate that as a 17-year-old kid. And so I just began to carry a gun every day. And I began to make up this narrative, as many of the young men I've talked to, 
um, have made up in my mind is that if I find myself in a conflict again, I'm shooting first before I get shot. Yeah. And 16 months later, I got into a conflict at nearly two in the morning um, in the middle of a drug transaction that I refused to make. And when that argument escalated, I fired multiple shots that tragically ended David's life. I was subsequently arrested. I was charged with open murder and I was sentenced to 17 to 40 years in prison for second degree murder. And when I went to prison, you know, I carried with me the guilt of knowing that I had devastated a family and I didn't have a way to communicate to them what was happening in my mind at the time. Um, everything was very robotic in terms of like how I was processed through the courts, how I was processed through prison. And it wasn't until years later when the woman who raised David reached out to me mm. that I was able to really speak to, you know, her and let her know, you know, all of who I was at that moment. And she's one of the first people I can say that actually gave me permission to acknowledge that I was a child. Mm. And she was one of the first people to say that, look, this series of things that transpired in your life, they contributed to the decision you made that night. Now, it doesn't excuse the decision, I, and I would never make an excuse for anything I, I did, whether I was 19 or whether I'm 90. Uh, but I think it's important for people to understand the how and the why these things happen and why they will continue to happen until we begin to address the mental health needs of inner city kids who are growing up in highly volatile environments. Um, and unfortunately, I just didn't have that. And what I'm trying to do at this point in my life is to use the, the terror and the horror of that experience to actually heal communities. Coming up, we'll talk about Shaka Senghor's latest effort to help our communities heal. As a dad, we'll crack open his book, Letters to the Sons of Society, a father's invitation to love, honesty, and freedom. Hi, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. A few weeks ago, we did an episode about the culture of gun violence in our country and why that's got to change to make any political progress on gun control. You should check it out. We covered a lot, including what's driving folks across the political spectrum to purchase guns. Does it actually make you safer or is that a myth? We received messages from you about the episode, including this one from Kevin in Connecticut. Hi, I'm a lifelong gun owner and a political mutt uh, in deep blue America. I thought the point made in the podcast that people are buying more guns based on a myth it, that they'll make you safer is more than a little condescending, honestly. We've seen system after system fail us since COVID, from the judicial system to law enforcement to public health. And I can share that at the start of the pandemic, two of the smartest, most liberal friends I have reached out to me. One to ask if she could borrow one of my guns if society collapsed. And the answer was no. And the other asked if I could go with him to a gun show to exploit the, quote, gun show loophole and was also a no. So these are not irrational people, but people seeing that the structures they've always trusted just may not be worthy of that trust anymore. I think that's a bigger factor than believing a myth. Thanks for that, Kevin. And thanks to all of you who are listening and talking to us. If you've got a message for us about anything you've heard, send us a voicemail. You can record yourself on your phone and email us. The address is anxiety at wnyc.org. That's anxiety at wnyc.org. All right, thanks. Talk to you soon. WNYC Studios is supported by Earth Justice. As a national legal nonprofit, Earth Justice has more than 200 full-time lawyers who fight for a healthy environment. 
They're challenging utilities to lower your power bill and fight climate change by helping communities achieve clean, affordable energy for all. From stopping new gas plants to helping advance the growth of rooftop solar, Earth Justice is accelerating the clean energy transition so we can all breathe easy. Visit earthjustice.org power to learn more. That's earthjustice.org power. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. A journalist gives up his disinformation beat to buy a site of satirical fake news, The Onion. We often hear from journalists that running a media outlet shouldn't be complicated, and yet the suits make it so. You're now a suit, Ben. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Is it complicated? You can't see this, but I'm in two tuxedos right now. It's one tuxedo inside of another tuxedo. (laughs) On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking this week with best-selling author, speaker, and activist Shaka Senghor about how he's used his own life story to help others find the mental health resources they need. His most recent book is called Letters to the Sons of Society, A Father's Invitation to Love, Honesty, and Freedom. It's a series of letters to his two sons, Jay and Seku. And we began our conversation about it by listening to him read from one of the letters. It's called The Freedom to Cry. Here's an excerpt. I want you both to be fully human, fully awake, fully in awe of how your tears can move our world forward, can release the pressure in yourself, in your community, a kind of sustaining rain. Don't ever apologize for your tears. And don't just save them for the moments when the world loses a star, a hero, or someone else famous. Use your tears for good to show that you are gentle and soft and emotionally open to grief and joy. And whatever else brings those tears to your eyes. I asked Shaka why this was an important lesson for him to give his sons. You know, when I when I think about that letter, you know, I actually get emotional thinking about it and thinking about the beauty and the gift of my dad's tears. You know, my my dad and my mom separated. I was about eleven years old, and I never forgot the feeling of my dad and I being in the basement and we were packing up his albums. And he just broke down in tears. And I remember him hugging me and I could still feel the scruff of his beard mixed in with the wetness of his tears. It's one of the greatest gifts he's ever given me because what it what it showed me is that, you know, men have the duality of being tough as well as soft. And one of my friends, he kind of describes it as, you know, you, you cultivate the, the, the lion so that you can be the lamb. And, and I think that, that that refinement of, you know, our propensity to be destructive, like, I mean, from the time I was a little boy, we were breaking things and, you know, throwing things and, you know, whatever drives that part. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know what drives that part of, uh, you know, our, our, our being, but I know I loved it. I love football. I love basketball. I love all those things, but I also love love. 
You know, I love the 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 ability to expand myself emotionally and to make sure that my sons have a model, not just someone who's telling this, but also modeling that for them. You know, um, after after the book was written and done, you know, I had two tragic incidents happen. One, my brother was murdered uh, last summer in July, and then shortly I'm after sorry. that, our uh, appreciate that. Um, and then shortly after that, in October, our puppy was killed. And I remember having to tell my son that, you know, our puppy had been killed and we just sat on the couch and we just cried, you know, and, and, and it was okay. And it was a safe space for both of us, you know, and, you know, in those moments when he's reflecting on our puppy and, and, and their sadness that comes over him, you know, I don't tell him that, you know, you got to be tough or you got to let it pass. It's like, no, sit in those feelings. Those feelings are important. And I think when fathers model for their children what it means to be emotionally available, what it means to be emotionally free, it does wonders for the world. You know, it makes them feel safe. It makes the household feel stable. And let's talk about things other than just anger and and, and stoicism. You know, I can't tell you how many dads are like, man, my dad never, never said, I love you. You know, uh, never hugged me. Never, I've never seen him smile or cry. He's always just a blank face as if everything is all right. You know, I, I have a 10-year-old son, so, and I mentor tons of, of boys, but also mentor young women as well. But my focus is intentionally on an area where I know that these young boys are not getting the permission they need to be all of who they are emotionally. And so if I can model that for my sons and, and see him model that with his peers and other dads are starting to model it, it's beautiful. This awakening of, of dad emotional vulnerability, it's incredible. And the ability, the right to be fully human being, you know, Absolutely. that's, that's the, to, to the right to be a full, full human being. Absolutely. So in the first letter of the book, it's called A Trip to the Gas Station. And you tell the story of being triggered by your son um, after he physically threatens you. Just can you take us back to that moment and what it was like um, to wrestle with that, to, to have your son triggering you with this conversation about violence? Yeah, there, there, there were a ton of things that I, I learned from that moment. You know, one is no one leaves prison without the deep penetrating scars of the prison experience. It's a very volatile environment. It's a very violent environment. And what I didn't account for was that there were some things about that environment I had not quite fully unpacked. Then there was the reality of compounded PTSD, which I hadn't factored in, mm -hmm. given that I was shot shortly before I went to prison and never got therapy as a result of that traumatic event in my life. So I was carrying a lot in my being, you know, and so on on the front end where, you know, I come out, I'm so hopeful and optimistic and I can't wait to build this relationship with my son. What I didn't think about is that in reality, my son and I were strangers. You know, my dad did an incredible job of keeping us writing letters to each other. He brought, you know, my, my oldest son, Jay, up whenever he could to visit me. And, you know, we would talk on the phone periodically throughout the 19 years. And what happened is that when you're in prison and you get one prison visit, that visit, the memories of that visit can last you for years. And so you have an, it, I had an attachment to an idea that wasn't quite true. I thought I was being a great dad because I can 
had these conversations on, you know, on the phone and in a visiting room and through letters. But my son was experiencing life in a, you know, way different way than than I could have possibly even imagined. And the fact of the matter was, I just wasn't there. And so when I came home, I tried to really, you know, just inspire him. I came home as a mentor. You know, I'm like, yo, here's how you do it. I know all this stuff and I can help you, blah, blah, blah. And I was trying to take him on a journey he didn't sign up for. So it caused this friction. Mm. But in addition to it, I was overcompensating. And, you know, I was giving him money and things of that nature to overcompensate for all the years I hadn't been there. And then it got to a point where it, it turned into a toxic dynamic between us two. It's very transactional. And so on, on that particular day, you know, he had called me and, you know, he's asking about, you know, some more money because he needed to get a license. And I had just kind of had gave him some money prior to that for the same thing. And, you know, he just began to, to curse me out and berate me, which I was like, you know, those are feelings. That's all fine. And then he threatened me and I was triggered, you know, because when I got shot, I got threatened. Yeah. You know, when I saw a man get stabbed in prison, it was because threats were exchanged. And, you know, I got triggered and I basically told his mom that, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take him and I'm going to dump him in this neighborhood. Um, and I was operating out of an energy that, you know, at the time I, I wasn't even aware of how angry I was or how potentially violent, you know, I was willing to be toward my son. And fortunately, I had great friends who were able to help defuse that. But I think that chapter is so important, not just for people who have, you know, loved ones incarcerated. I just think this is a father-son dynamic that exists in the world. I think when you add to the mix of that, you know, high levels of gun violence and, you know, violent environments, you know, we see that these outcomes can potentially be dangerous and deadly. And that's what, you know, happened with my son. Yeah. It's a letter to fathers as much as it is a letter to sons of the world at that point. Yeah. I wonder yeah. what it's like to have to talk about this constantly. I mean, you've made this choice, right? Um, you know, you've written books and you're out here and you said you've got a mission to try to bring your life experience um, uh, and let us all learn from it. Um, but at the same time, you know, when I think about the amount of really raw sharing <laughs> that you have to do, uh, to tell your story. Um, I just wonder about that and also about the way sometimes it feels like we as a society, it feels like we're weird. Uh, we the society and the way we look at you and what we want from you. And I just wonder what you think about that. I think the reality is we live in a very voyeuristic society. I think that is is what the, the, the entry, you know, with these kind of stories is we like to look into the face of fear. And the reality is most people fear going to prison. They can't imagine, you know, the horror of being in that environment. But there's something that brings people like to the to the edge of it. Right. Like if I can get close enough to mm -hmm. it and, you know, and sometimes it's masked up under this, you know, we want to do good and we want to end, you know, prison. But in reality, it's like we're just curious about that world in a way. Um, but for me, I am I'm balanced by the reality. My friends are in prison. And I know that I have a skill set to speak the truth to these realities. Um, I hate more than anything other people trying to tell our stories. And, and, and it's one of the reasons that I'm, you know, I feel fortunate and blessed to be able to write and articulate my experiences without them being interpreted through lenses that are oftentimes classes, races, uh, sexes. And so I think it's important 
to be the owner of our own narratives. And, you know, my life is much more than this experience. Like, you know, even, even with the letters, you know, I didn't, I wasn't focused as much on my incarceration as I was my life and my perspective as a dad, because that's what's important to me at this point in my life is being a dad. Where I came from is not as significant to me um, as it is to others, but I also do a ton of other things. You know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm creative. I write outside of that space. You know, I produce shows. I produce, you know, documentaries. I work in the world of tech. You know, when I'm at, you know, one of the things I love about our company is, you know, the CEO was like, you know, I can't wait to see you blossom as a tech executive. You know, <laughs> and so when I earned that 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 experience, he was like, you're one of the most brilliant people I know. So from a writing standpoint, you know, I'm more like you know, did you like the writing? Like, I don't care if you like the story or not. Did you actually like my writing? Like, that's what really matters to me uh, from a from a writer standpoint. Um, but also, does the story resonate in a way that frees you from yourself? Like, there's all type of prisons. I can't tell you how many people is like, hey, that book helped me escape the own prison of my mind. You know, the prison of my addiction, the prison of a toxic relationship. So, you know, you can use it both literal. And, you know, figuratively, because right. I think it resonates in so many different ways. Uh, on the subject of your writing, let's hear a little bit more uh, of you reading from the audiobook, one of your letters. This is part of the letter called Parenting. There's a trope in our culture of the absent father and the sainted single mother. But the reality for so many of us is actually agony. Do you really think we want to be away from our children? Who would choose such a thing? Relationships end, and the culture is adamant that the mother should take the lead in parenting and spending time with and nurturing. There are very few courts or judges who, all things equal, land upon the father as the most appropriate parent. And so we have learned to take the second role, to acquiesce to the image of us as less than, as inadequate to the task of love. We are not inadequate to it. We yearn for it. But so often we find ourselves out here in the garage of our lives, away from the main rooms, stilling ourselves for either loss or reentry. I tell you this, Sekou, with no bitterness. I just wish fathers could change their narrative a bit and be seen as equal to the love of mothers. You talked about this a little bit already, but can you say more about this idea of fathers as equal to the love of mothers? You know, it, it's so interesting that you know, when I think back to the narrative around specifically the absent black father and how this trope has been created to basically put on a pedestal this idea of a single mother as the sole backbone of the community. And then you go into the community and you see all these dads who are present in different ways. They may not be counted in the census because of governmental restrictions around who can inhabit a household if there's governmental assistance, but it doesn't mean that they're not present. And then I just go to my personal experience. Like I have a family of incredible dads. Like we don't, we don't have a dad beat in our family. It's, it's unheard of. And it doesn't mean that we fit this kind of neat box model of like a guy who goes home and does a nine to five and he just right. comes home and puts the check on the table, disciplines the kid and he goes to bed. It's complex. You know, my dad, you know, raised a total of nine children, three of them biologically his and six stepchildren. And we're all adults now. And, and, and 
all of my siblings adore my dad. And he wasn't a perfect father. He didn't have a perfect thing. But what he brought that was special and sacred is his honesty and his ability to be emotionally vulnerable and available. The thing is that it's just a part of a narrative that conveniently gets excluded when we're talking about fatherhood, you know, and I know some incredible mothers. I know some mothers who are so amazing. And, and, and I mean, there's nothing that they wouldn't do to make their child, the community and society better. But I also know some mothers that aren't great at the role of motherhood. And that is also true. And it's, it's this thing where we're like tied to this idea of these extremes. It's like the extreme of great motherhood and the extreme of absent fatherhood. And the reality is we exist in a way that we just don't talk about. We can be nurturers. It's like if you want if you want a softer society, you want a more welcoming human society, we have to be included. Like all of who we are has to be included in our narratives. It and brings me back to that nurturing. human point, right? There are humans being who are good fathers or bad fathers. And what is Absolutely. good changes and varies. I, I think about it a lot because it I do varies. think it also forces us to think about family, like the idea of family. So many black family structures, and maybe it's other communities too. I know black family. So many black family structures f- challenge the the definition of family as it's received. Absolutely. Um, and then challenge how we then must show up in those with new definitions. I don't know. That's what I hear in a lot of what yeah, you're saying. And, and, I, and I actually, I mean, I think, again, it's, it's like he who controls the narrative controls the outcomes, right? And when you when you think about who's been telling the story of the American family, you know, who's been telling the story is a predominantly white media. Like, that's just the reality of television, music, all these entertainment outlets who control narratives. I grew up with the Leave it to Beaver, you know, all these stories. And it went for years and years, a new iteration of that family dynamic. And meanwhile, this narrative of the broken black family is being pushed. And then when you get to real life, I got sons of my white friends who dads are not there and their stepdads had to step in. I mean, the divorce rates don't lie. The divorce rates are a real thing, and they're not just one color, right? Right. And so when you start getting down into the truth of the thing, we're all experiencing this. It's just how we talk about it or how people talk about it as it relates to us. And so for me, I tell people, like, I don't I don't need to change the narrative, but we need to expand the narrative. Just include all of who we are, and we good. Like, I can deal with, you know, the, the, the dad beat dad as long as you're including the fully present, nurturing, loving, caring dads that are always around, always stepping up, always filling in the gap. You know, if you're including all of our story, then then it's all good. But this is why I write. It's like we have to tell our own stories. And that's no, you know, not to anybody else, because a lot of times they're just benefiting from the storytellers from their community and their culture. And the reality is we have to tell our own stories. Shaka Sangor is a best-selling author, speaker, and mentor, among many other things. His most recent book is called Letters to the Sons of Society, a father's invitation to love, honesty, and freedom. The excerpts we played of him reading from the audiobook version are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. Shaka, thanks so much for this time and for your work. Thank you so much for having me and for reading my work. You know, I'm really looking forward to this work just standing the test of time and really impacting people and communities in an honest and real way.
United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios. If you heard anything that sparks a thought in this conversation, please send it to us. Email a voice memo to anxiety at WNYC.org. We always want to hear from you, and you never know, you might just spark an idea for a whole entire show. So that's anxiety at WNYC.org. Our theme music is written by Hannes Brown and performed by the Attleboro Brass Band. Mixing and sound design this week by Andrew Dunn. Our team also includes Emily Botine, Regina Dehir, Karen Froman, Kusha Navadar, Rahima Nasa, and Jared Paul. I'm Kai Wright. You can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Kai underscore Wright. And you can catch the show live on Sundays, 6 p.m. Eastern, by finding us on YouTube. Just go over to WNYC's YouTube channel and look for our show. That's also now where you can find whole entire episodes of each show if you prefer to listen that way instead of in separate segments. Anyway, however you listen, thanks for being in the community, and I'll talk to you soon. WNYC Studios is supported by Earth Justice. As a national legal nonprofit, Earth Justice has more than 200 full-time lawyers who fight for a healthy environment. They're challenging utilities to lower your power bill and fight climate change by helping communities achieve clean, affordable energy for all. From stopping new gas plants to helping advance the growth of rooftop solar, Earth Justice is accelerating the clean energy transition so we can all breathe easy. Visit earthjustice.org slash power to learn more. That's earthjustice.org slash power.